I was seeing maybe my 50th patient of the day. She probably waited two and a half hours. She was waiting in the room. I opened the door and I said, you know, thank you for your patience. She did not want to hear any of that. She was waiting for two and a half hours. It was, it was really bad. And so I felt very stressed. I remember leaving that office in tears. From Washington, D.C., this is The Tightrope. I'm your host, Dan Smolin. On this episode, we meet Dr. Charles Glassman, a physician who stopped accepting health insurance payments to establish one of the first concierge medical practices in the United States. His business model change was not without consequence. When Dr. Glassman dropped insurance payments, his practice went from treating several thousand patients to about 50. But those patients who agreed to stay on and pay him an annual concierge fee got something that few of us experience, more time with and the undivided attention of our doctor. As a result, Dr. Glassman empowers his concierge patients to lead better and happier lives while growing his global thought leadership in wellness and extending meaningfulness in our lives. Our conversation covered a lot of topics, including his inspiring life story, but also Dr. Glassman's thoughts on empowering us to achieve meaningfulness at work. We spoke with him in June of 2018 at his offices in Pomona, New York. Welcome to the tightrope, Dr. Charles Glassman. Thanks, Dan, for having me. Greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. I went to school at Hobart College in Geneva, New York. Then I went to New York Medical College, uh, where I graduated with a medical degree. I spent time in the Bronx at Albert Einstein and uh, Montefiore Medical Center then Westchester Medical Center, and I arrived in Rockland County, New York, a suburb of New York City, about 30 miles north of, uh, of Manhattan, where I practiced internal medicine since 1988. So take us back to New Haven when you were a little kid. What were your first, what do I want to be when I grow up dreams about? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Great question. And as long as I can remember, I had it in me that I wanted to be a doctor. And who knows, really, when you're a little kid, you usually come up with uh, things you want to be, things you want to do that kind of resonate with adults. And certainly you start telling people that you want to be a doctor, especially adults, and you get a lot of, oh, pats on the back. Oh, that's good. That's, that's, you know, that, that's a good uh, a path projection that you have. And uh, uh, I think it was my mother uh, telling me that I used to watch Dr. Kildare. And, oh, really? Right. I don't think I did, really. I think that that was just her kind of nudging me along to, to become a doctor. But that's kind of was my dream. Uh, not everybody believed in me. My parents did. But along the way, uh, not, not everybody did. So what did you connect with in that dream? What was it about being a doctor when you were a little kid that excited you? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question, thinking about it. I, I think it, it to be quite honest, it probably was a little bit of a prestige thing. Because uh, as a little kid, what do you really know about helping people? I mean, that, that's part of it, and that, that's a great if you can uh, m uh, merge those together. But being a doctor, it seemed as though doctors were so admired, and doctors seemed to be almost larger than life, especially in the conversations amongst adults. I think that probably, if I look and be honest, 
was was probably an attraction uh, to that. And then it just became a dream and a goal, something to shoot for. Did anything along your adolescence change it at all? Hmm. Uh, I think nothing really changed it. Things made uh, dug me in deeper toward it. And one of those things was in, in high school. I wasn't a bad student in high school. I wasn't top of my class. I was probably right in the middle. So when it came down to declaring, uh, to telling your, your college advisor what you wanted to do, what your dreams or goals were, and I told my advisor that I was thinking of going into medicine. Well, he's kind of paused and he said, look, um, you know, medicine is a really tough field. Maybe you ought to think of something different. And I, when he said that, that made me, no matter what, I was going to do it. So some people would actually doubt themselves. This put more steel in your spine. It absolutely did. This, uh, there was, when he said that to me, I, 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 I couldn't believe it. Okay, he, um, he was the also the coach of our our track team. Okay, and he, I was in a race my junior year in track. This was a 440. So in the in the olden days, we we measured distance by yards. This was a 440 yard dash and or 440 yard run. And I remember that I was probably last coming around the, the 220 yard mark, and I finished second. And he commented on the look in my eyes when he saw me coming around the last bend. He had never seen such determination. Yet even with that he still discouraged me from becoming a doctor. So what pointed you to internal medicine? I mean, you could have been a specialist in a lot of different fields. Why yeah. internal medicine? I, I didn't know what I wanted to do uh, when I was uh, starting to finish medical school. We had to declare our, um, you know, our, our specialty, what we we're gonna do, our residency, what we we're going to apply for as an intern. And I kind of, uh, some of my friends and and. Uh, some of, I was involved in karate and our karate sensei was also a medical student. He was a ortho, he became an orthopedic surgeon mm. and orthopedics just seemed really fun. And it seemed like a, a fraternity almost when, when I did rotations in it, it was almost like, like we were in college again and, and no, nothing was serious and it was kind of fun. So I said, wow, this, this maybe I'm going to be, maybe I'll, I'll go out for that. Well, it turned out when I was applying, that was the most competitive residency to get into. I didn't get into it, but I got into a surgical internship. Okay. And that surgical internship was in the Bronx, New York, at Montefiore and Albert Einstein. It was a unique opportunity because it had, you had to take internal medicine in that surgery program. The only, one of the only programs in the country that required you to do at least four months of medicine. When I got into it, I realized, you know, this really isn't me. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm more someone who connects with people on a, a deeper level. And, and I'm not to say that, that surgery is not in a very important uh, specialty, practice orthopedics, not that it's not an important specialty, very important, but it wasn't me. Mm -hmm. I, felt as, I felt as though I was connecting more uh, with people that it would be more my character to be an internist. So I traded out some of my months in surgery. I ended up doing five months of surgery, six months of internal medicine. Then I transferred uh, to Westchester Medical Center to finish my internal medicine rotations, uh, residency. So when did you go into private practice? Uh, after internal medicine, 
uh, you you declare what you want to do. You okay. either go for a fellowship or you go into private practice. And I didn't know what I was going to do again because I didn't have any opportunities. Nothing was was staring me in the face. So I said, okay, you know why? I'll 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 do a pulmonary fellowship because I just didn't know what I was going to do. Didn't know what. Right. So after I said I was going to do a pulmonary fellowship, okay. the chief resident gets a call from a doctor in Rockland County, New York, who was looking for somebody to moonlight in his practice while he went on vacation. Well, because I was a, a good resident, because I, I did what I needed to do, I was very strong, and, and he thought of me first. He recommended me. So I did the moonlighting stint in, in his office. I raised some money for myself to go on my own vacation. Oh, wow. You know, no, from, I mean, when I say raised my, I mean, he paid me. You know, that's, he paid me for that, which was great. It, 28, 27, 28 years old, yeah. and he gave me you know, a couple thousand dollars, which was you know more than I was making residency. And it was that, it went so well that he actually offered me a position. Like a lot of doctors, a patient presents and they pay primarily through insurance. It's fee for service. You did that for a while. Yeah. But not forever. Right. What changed? Yeah, so I go into private practice 1988 and things were really hopping in our practice. We were growing two, 3,000 new patients a year. We were adding doctors, we were adding uh, uh, physician extenders, nurse practitioners, uh, physician's assistants. Till the mid 90s when managed care started to come in and start mm -hmm. to cap what we would make. Uh, they would determine this is you're going to see this amount of patients and this is how much you're going to make. So it really became what I, I describe as a volume discount practice. So we were offering kind of a Costco type medicine. Mm. You get you get you know a lot of volume. You could you can charge lower. You can get lower fees because you are seeing more. So this volume discount really started to 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 wear on us. It mm. started to wear on us that we started to have to shrink because we couldn't keep we couldn't afford to pay the the, the other other doctors the other physician extenders right. and i remember every two weeks the payroll i used to get a sick feeling in my stomach because it was just so much so this went on from i would say i started in 1988 and 2002 kind of everything hit the fan and it was two consecutive Mondays in, 2000, in March of 2002 where I felt it especially. And the first Monday was, I was, guess I was seeing maybe my 50th patient of the day. She probably waited two and a half hours. She was waiting in the room. I opened the door and I said, you know, thank you for your patience. She did not want to hear any of that. She was waiting for two and a half hours. It was, it was really bad. And so I felt very stressed. I remember leaving that office in tears that, that evening. The next Monday, same sort of deal, 45, 50 patients. A woman comes into the office demanding records from her husband who we had treated uh, a year before, who had been seen by our nurse practitioner who ended up having a ruptured aneurysm two days after he saw our nurse practitioner Thank goodness he survived and actually did well, which is very rare for that kind of thing. But I thought, okay, she's looking for records. She's going to sue us. This is it. And feeling people yelling at me all day. That night I did go home crying in, in the car and just feeling something's going to have to give. That woman never did sue us, which was good. But 
two or three days after that Monday, maybe it was Wednesday or Thursday, across my desk came a New England Journal of Medicine article that talked about these new practices mm -hmm. that were opening up. And these new practices were what are called concierge or retainer-based practices. It was fascinating to me that doctors were actually paying a fee, becoming a private office in a way, a real private practice where patients would pay them a little bit more so then they could have more personal time with their doctor. I thought it was fascinating. I called the number, right? Or I looked up the company right away. I thought I was calling a doctor's office. It turned out it was a company helping doctors. And 10 months later, my associate and I became the first in New York State to open up such a practice and the eighth and ninth doctors in the United States to open up such a practice. So for our listeners, explain the difference between fee-for-service and concierge. So a fee-for-service is you, you or your business company pays for insurance, and insurance will reimburse the doctor a certain fee, fee for their service. Most of the time, a person has to pay a copay. So for instance, in 1988, our fee for an office visit was $60. Mm -hmm. In 2002, our fee for an office visit was about $50. Now, how many industries do you go after 14 years and the fee goes down? So of that $50, the doctor would get maybe $35 from the insurance company and $15 as a copay. Mm -hmm. So that's fee for service. When I talked about volume discount, the doctor has to see a lot of patients to pay themselves, to pay their overhead pay their employees, the rent, that sort of overhead. So a concierge or a retainer base, a person will pay a doctor a fee. They will retain their services. So like one might pay a lawyer. Okay. So a, a, someone might pay a lawyer a retainer fee, which is a lot more, and that they get all-inclusive services. They get uh, they represent them on different you know, wills and testaments and uh, uh, court appearances. Right. What you get from a doctor, and usually the retainer fee is anywhere now probably from anywhere from $1,400 to $5,000 a person. Mm -hmm. And what a person gets is a very personalized practice, a very personalized relationship with their doctor. I like to say it's like having a doctor in the family. So mm -hmm. when my children adult children now if they have a if they're living as they do out of my home and it's a sunday and they have a sore throat they can call dad mm. okay if if you are fee for service and you want to talk to your doctor on the weekend or at nights or you want to email your doctor or text your doctor chances are you're not going to get your doctor you might get a doctor but not your doctor and you're just you're probably not going to get a personalized, someone who really knows you, knows your family, knows your stresses in your life, knows everything about you because it's like having a doctor in the family. Describe for our listeners how your experience as a physician changed and in reflection, how your patient's experience with you changed. In 2005, I had to make a decision. Mm -hmm. Was I going to stay with the company who helped me do this or was I going to become independent as a concierge doctor? I made the decision to become independent because I realized that what my focus is, is on wellness and prevention. That's my benchmark of what I wanted to do as a doctor, my belief system. I found that initially, 
the objection for people paying the fee was that they only thought they had to be sick to have that kind of relationship. So I made the change because I wanted to attract people who were younger, uh, you know, no, no, or, or healthier, older people, people who weren't just defining themselves by their illness, but who really wanted to have a holistic approach to their wellness. And when I say holistic, I mean, not only considering integrative or alternative medicine, but also mind and spirit, mm-hmm. something which I hold very true to my own heart and something I wanted to practice. So by doing that, I kept the same paradigm, but I started to have that sort of relationship with people who, who wanted that also. So I would imagine with more time with per patient, you're listening better. Is this the genesis for Coach MD? Yes, because again, as you said, I have more time to listen and as my wife would say, more time to hear. Because mm. it's one thing to listen and it's another thing to really hear. And here is kind of the implementation of listening. It's the action step in listening. And what I heard was that people were having challenges in their everyday life. And it started really with one patient who, like I do with most of my patients, we sit down and we talk. When someone schedules an appointment with me, the minimum is 30 minutes. But many times it goes on for 45 minutes to an hour and we really have a conversation. So this guy said to me how great he felt after our sessions, but then he'd go back into his life and things would unravel because it was very stressful. Was there something I could do to kind of kick him in the butt between office visits, to kind of straighten him out, to motivate him? We came up with this weekly email and the weekly email, I found I was being more motivational. I wasn't really telling him, well, you should take this supplement, you should watch this in your diet, you should do this in your exercise program. It was more motivational. It struck me too, well, why should I just give it to him? I mean, it's, it's important, he needs mm-hmm. to get his life together. But I think that it would help my other patients. I started expanding my email list, and as I started giving more advice, I realized I needed to do some introspection because I had to walk the walk. And the more I gave this advice, I realized I was bearing my soul. And that became the genesis of my first book, Brain Drain, because those emails became longer and longer. And soon they became a chapter of my book each week. So now you write this book, it's very successful. And now you're known not just in New York State, but across the country and perhaps across the globe. What's that been like? It's humbling to an extent, it really is, and it reinforces my belief how although we're all different, we're all the same. And we all operate on this, we're all going through this life as I think it was Wayne Dyer who said, we're a spirit in a body rather than a body in a spirit, or something like that. You know, we're spiritual beings and, and our vehicle is our body. The more I connect with people around the world, the more I connect with people locally, it just reinforces that strong sense of connection. And it it is humbling. You write often in your book about what you call the automatic brain. I think some people call the autonomic senses, the fight or flight senses that kick in when adrenaline courses through our veins. What is that and why is it important that we know what it is? Through this writing, I I felt I had to figure something out. I had to figure something out of myself because I'm one 
who just like everybody else has certain anxieties, mm -hmm. insecurities, and I really had to figure out what it was that was causing those things in me. And it, it struck me that you know I really didn't know until I started writing and, and working it out. And as I wrote totally about myself, people would respond to me, you, you're writing to me. And I would answer, no, I'm writing to me. So what that automatic brain is, let's go back to that boy in high school that the counselor said, no, you, you should try something a little easier. That automatic brain in me was the fight or flight. What was I fighting and fleeing? I was fighting and fleeing being one-upped. See, uh -huh. the one-up trigger, the trigger of being somebody being superior. And most many people in their, uh, uh, in their early teens, they show it in different ways. They rebel. They try to you know, be the jock or the tough guy on campus, whatever. Mm -hmm. Me, this was an adult saying this to me. If he was to defeat my dream, it was almost, I've, I've always had this faith also in something greater than myself. So it was almost as though he was challenging my God in a sense too. Taking that primitive reflex of mine, not to be one-upped, because we all have it. I chose to fight. I didn't choose. It was, a, it was an instinct. It was an automatic reflex. That's an instance where it turned out good. Most of the time, it doesn't turn out good. Most of the time, our automatic brain sabotages us. And so this is the, the we, can, we can call the automatic brain or the AB, as I call it, think of it as an animal instinct. Mm -hmm. Think of it as a primitive instinct. Think of it as a reptilian instinct, a reptile with a brain. So mm -hmm. it's a reptilian instinct, yet it's more highly evolved than humans. So even though we think we're, we're not animals, all of us share that animal nature. So it comes out in things like, I have to have the last word. Absolutely. That's it. That's the reflex because we can't be one-upped. And as I wrote more, I'd, I identified three major components of the automatic, of, of our dangers that we share. And those three major components of these universal dangers are the one-up danger, and so we talked about, like, as you said, getting the last word in, having to be right. Our opinions need to be right. You know, that's someone dissing us. Those are the typical in our common day experience being one-upped. The second is the unknown, the unfamiliar, the unexpected, universal danger among animals. Okay, these are animal Animals, the, the unexpected, the unknown, well, they don't really, well, they get used to, things and if if it's unfamiliar uncomfortable unknown they will trigger as we will same with the one up you have an alpha in in most animal societies that's the protector okay and then coming talk about protection and security the last one and one one that most people don't aren't aware of is the loss of love the loss of love is a very strange danger trigger and what that means is really it's the loss of security because love is synonymous with security. And, and I'll give you an example. There was an experiment done, I think in the 60s, where there was a uh, infant uh, chimpanzee or gorilla, it was an infant gorilla. That gorilla was taken away from its mother and it was given a, a luxurious life. It was given everything, a beautiful uh, environment, all the food it needed. But this gorilla, this baby gorilla started to wither. 
almost died. And that's because that is the primitive instinct to fight or flee. That danger is so important. That instinct is so important that if you threaten, that's why we will fight and flee to secure love. That's why so many people are so needy because they don't want to lose it. That And it really is less about love in the primitive sense, more about security. That primitive nature is really the loss of security. So those are the three dangers. That's kind of the roadmap of what I call the automatic brain. And whenever we are faced with any one of those possible dangers, we will automatically trigger and fight and flee. So what's making us so sick? Stress is, is the generic term for the face of the automatic brain. And our brain is an electrochemical unit. And that electrochemical, and the, and the fight or flight response or reaction of the AB is an electrochemical one. And the electrical stimulus will put out a chemical response. That chemical response is adrenaline, epinephrine, norepinephrine, excuse me, norepinephrine, noradrenaline, cortisol, those are all very important hormones that we need if we have to be fighting and fleeing a beast in the wilderness or something that we have to, if we're, in, if we're fighting a, a, uh, a predator and we sla- our leg gets slashed, we can't afford to bleed out or we're going to be lunch for that predator, right? right? So these chemicals will cause vasoconstriction, our arteries to tighten. They will cause us to have what's called a hypercoagulable state. It will mean that we clot more. So we all heard of heart attacks, right? Now a heart attack is a narrowing of blood vessels. A heart attack is a uh, usually a blood clot. That can be the end game of this. But what happens is the lifestyle and the reactions and the habits we form because of the automatic brain and because we're in a fight or flight mode underneath all the time causes us ill habits. And those ill habits, we might self-medicate with drugs or food or even things that might seem good for us like exercise. We might compulsively exercise, Mm -hmm. which isn't good for you. So the automatic brain indirectly and indirectly affects our health, usually to the negative. However, um, there is one aspect of it which can be positive, and I call, and that's called the hormetic effect. And what that means is what Friedrich Nietzsche says, what won't kill us will make us stronger. That is the hormetic effect. So for instance, a little dose of this automatic brain, a little dose of stress can actually put us in a position that if we're faced with something that's overtly stressful, our body can handle it better. So for instance, exercise is really stress, but it's the hormetic effect because it's putting a little bit of stress on our body to make us more able to face stress down the line that that might be unhealthy caused by the automatic brain. So you've done this for a while and you've collected all these narratives of patients how many of them are stuck in a meaningless job or a job that just they're doing it because they need to put food on the table, put their children through college, have medical benefits? And that's the only reason that they stay. But the boss is toxic. The work is meaningless. And their only motivation to go to work and do that meaningless job is money. 
Yeah. So what happens with that? And and yeah. And can you address that? Yeah, I, I it it deeply hurts me that that kind of what you just said. I mean, I really I, I feel that I viscerally feel that. And one of the reasons why I do what I do is because I can't sit idly by idly by without providing some out for people. And when I say some out, it doesn't mean to drop their job. It doesn't mean to quit. But I notice that one of the primary motivation or one of the primary triggers of ill health, there, I, I look at, I like triads, okay? okay. Uh, money, health, and relationships. Okay, those three. But money especially makes people sick. Mm. And it's not only the money, but it's the, like as you painted it, the need and, and, the, and the pressure and to, to have a, a responsibility and to provide for a family and all that, very stressful. So what I usually, the way I, I guide people when I, I find, and I do often, many times, find that that's a driving uh, a force behind their ill health, I try to help them recognize, uh, first of all, to do, in their daily life, to derive some pleasure, regardless mm-hmm. of their their struggles, to find some meaning in their daily struggles. So on a daily basis, try to find some meaning in what you're doing. Even though the global picture the of what you're doing, the, the big picture of what you're doing seems purposeless, seems meaningless, try to find something within that, whether it's uh, with a coworker, whether it's uh, some aspect of your job that that you really know you can do really well at. Mm-hmm. Um, I never tell someone, to, if this job is providing them something to provide for their family, I never tell them, well, if it's meaningless, you gotta leave it. Right. What I tell them to do is whatever you're doing now, do the best you can at it because you never know what might cross your path. Okay, that's one, one thing that, that I, I, tell, I, I encourage people to do. The second thing is if you feel it's meaningless, don't quit your day job. But just start to explore those aspects of yourself and your character that are strong in you, that have always been strong in you, that have always been a desire. So if I look at myself and I look at what was motivating me to become a doctor and I look back now as an adult, yes, prestige probably was one of them as a kid, but I had that in me that made me go fight or flee that those recommendations right. from that. So I knew that I had something in me that was really, that was something at a level where I could help people at a different level. Like I could almost stand outside of a uh, of a bad circumstance and be able to help people through it. And, and I did. I had friends in, um, you know, growing up who used to turn to me for advice and I used mm-hmm. to like giving it. So I started to see that in my own self, in my own practice. When I did this uh, concierge practice, that was a great risk. Sure. I mean, that was a huge risk. Four young children, we had a new house. Uh, we went from 14,000 charts down to 50 overnight. Wow. So talk about, but I knew that this company was helping me. So that was, you know, I didn't, it wasn't blind. We, we had some help. And, but as, as I started with my practice, I realized it wasn't quite, I just didn't want to take care of sick people and prescribe, give medications and just do the same old, same old, which wasn't really helping people. I wanted to find some meaning and purpose in it. So that's what I try to help people do in their own careers. 
to try to s sort out. Do what you're doing, do it the best you can, mm -hmm. as I always tried to do, but as you're doing that, start to tease out aspects of your soul, of your heart, things that you really want to be doing. Don't quit your day job, but start exploring those on the side. Maybe on your way to work, start listening to books that might be empowering, that might be along the lines of your purpose and meaning, because that will make you sick. Not only will it do that, it will start sparking the automatic brain. It will start triggering your relationships with your spouse and your family, because you'll feel like they're putting too much pressure on you. They're, in a sense, the world is one-upping you, and you're fighting and fleeing that, because now you feel little, you feel small, you feel like Fred Flintstone, if, those of you, I'm dating myself, but you know, <laughs> Fred Flintstone, when he would go to for an interview with uh, Mr. Slate, I think it was, right. would start getting smaller and smaller right. and smaller. And that's how so many of us feel when really we are so big. Again, we are a spirit in a body. We are spiritual beings and we're so much greater than us than this physical automatic brain, which has this kind of running circles and feeling the way you're describing. When I became a recruiter, and I'm not a recruiter anymore, as my listeners know, but in 20 years of doing it, when I dealt with people who were high flyers, what we used to call dragon slaves, right. the word that used to come up more than anything is control. Mm. I can't control. I need to control. And as I was listening to you talk, I thought about that word. Mm. What I tried to do as a recruiter, sometimes not successfully, would be to try to help them identify other motivations that got them beyond that need to to run the show and find something joyful. Now, maybe it's a different kind of motivation. Sometimes people yeah. like solving problems. Sometimes, like you, it was to be um, more altruistic and be more of a help and a better listener. Mm -hmm. Are you, yeah. do, do you find that comes up a lot, that, con, that, that need for control? Well, and and yeah. beyond work, you know, it could be in the family too. I need quiet. I need, I, I can't have the kids running around the living room. I'm trying to have a quiet moment. Yeah. Spe getting, getting to that, addressing that, that CEO, the, 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 the dragon slayer, right? Right. Um, <clears throat> it, it reminds me of a, of, of a friend of mine who was a, a, a you know, big hotshot hedge fund it was his hedge fund. He was the guy in the right. hedge fund. There was a, a circumstance where he, few people came in. Actually, there was probably about a, a meeting of, of the higher ups in the company, the board, I guess maybe five or six people. And it was a circumstance that as he was addressing them, he broke, he, his voice cracked and he held back tears. Well, word got around the, the, the company very quickly and it made him have some, they had much, so much more respect for him. That he did that. That he did that. <clears throat> he didn't, he thought he blew it. He thought that this is it. You know, I'm going to have to quit. Nobody's going to respect me anymore. And what, what struck me and what really helped me get over some of my anxieties, mm -hmm. especially when I started practice and I really didn't feel as though I was really a doctor. I had this insecurity that I was going to be found out or discovered that I was a fraud, what, <laughs> what got me over that was this idea that vulnerability can be your greatest asset. Vulnerability, our automatic brain will say, oh no, you can't be vulnerable, you have to be tough, you have to be strong. And surely there are times when you don't want your doctor to show their vulnerability. Vulnerability 
can be a very strong, and it, it's not expected, it's paradoxical, but for the CEO to show the control and to show they're big and strong and powerful, yes, that might work some of the time, and some of the time you have to, but you also have to know times to be vulnerable, to be a human, right. to be personable, and I think that goes a long way. You made a career transition, even though you've remained yeah. a doctor, you, your motivation from the time you were a little kid in New Haven was to be a doctor, but you changed your practice. You went from one that was basically transactional to one that was value added. Mm. Um, for our listeners who are trying to make that kind of a, a pivot in their lives to something more meaningful in their work, what advice might you give them to to perhaps make themselves more successful in the transition? Sure. One of my favorite, uh, and coming from a doctor that's very unusual, but one of my favorite topics is money. And what does that mean? And I think that understanding what money really is, is important when you transition. And I have a formula that passion plus purpose plus perseverance plus action multiplied by the, in a, in a in, in parentheses, multiplied by people will equal your profits. And so those profits will turn out in our world where money is the currency on earth, those profits will be monetary. Mm -hmm. But you're not trying to make that your sum because what you're putting into that equation is purpose plus passion plus perseverance but you need to take action. But the more you do that to the number of people you do it with, it's going to turn into profit. So look at your gifts, mm -hmm. your talents, your individual strengths and abilities, those that you've had since you were a child. We all have certain gifts and talents. Take those. And before you leave your job, though, make sure that you have enough to survive at least six months. Mm -hmm. Okay, But if you don't, don't leave your job yet. Take those ideas, look at that equation, and start applying it. What goods and services can you provide to the maximum number of people? And maybe it's not a lot of people at first, because even if it's one person, so you could flip action and people around. So if it's purpose plus passion plus perseverance plus people multiplied by action, that'll give you profits. It'll be more of a heart-filled uh, heart profit not necessarily monetarily, but in order to survive, you need to be grounded on this earth from a monetary point of view, because it is the currency of this earth, and that will take applying that equation, because I feel it's very important as a doctor to address this, because as I said before, what gets so many people sick is their ability to manage the challenges of everyday life, which many times boils down to money, and that's why money is important to me. And that's why I look at that, that formula. Well, Dr. Charles Glassman, thank you so much for walking the tightrope. One last thing, if our listeners could look up your website and some of your social media, where would you point them? Go to my website, www.charlesglassmanmd, like medical doctor, md.com, charlesglassmanmd.com. From there, I also have a free ebook that you can get. It's called Fake News Stories by Your Brain. Okay, so uh, it's a little uh, contemporary title, but it also it tells you, you know, it has you know what your, your brain is telling you, these fake stories. But, and you'll see my social media and stuff. You can get to a lot of uh, 
and contact me through charlesglassmanmd.com. Well, thank you very much for being on the tightrope. Dan, thanks so much for having me. Thanks again to our guest, Dr. Charles Glassman, for walking the tightrope with us. Links to his website and other resources are available on our website at dansmolin.com. Check out our past episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts by keywording The Tightrope with Dan Smolin. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and post your comments like listener Voltron411 who writes... Just came across your podcast at the recommendation of a friend. I could not stop listening to the episode with the founder of Epic Experiences, Eva Grodberg, and listener Jewel JD, who comments that the featured guests are well chosen for their points of view and insight on career pathways. Hey, thanks for the comments. Before we go, I have two reminders. First, don't forget to subscribe to our mailing list. And second, please suggest topics that you believe we should tackle in future episodes by writing us at info at From Washington, D.C., this is The Tightrope. I'm Dan Smolin. And do remember this, our best days lie ahead. Have a great and successful week, everyone. 